Are you listening? Damn. Uh. Yo, yo, yo. What's up, everybody? This is Saul Bookman. You're on the Saul Bookman Show podcast. And uh, I mean, I'm so excited to be here with you. It wasn't an ideal weekend. Of course, Arizona losing to the worst team in the Pac-12 is not a great look. But the women... They took care of business because all we were asking for them to do was win against Cal. Avenge your loss to Cal, and you might be hosting the first and second round of the NCAA tournament. And by God, that's exactly what they did. They dominated the Bears. We're going to get right into it. We also have some cool uh, news coming for you. Wildcat Bingo. Yep, Pac-12 tournament bingo is returning. You can go to our Twitter page and you can download that form, take a look, and uh, you know if you retweet any of the five Wildcat Radio episodes this week, that's right, there's going to be five Wildcat Radio episodes this week at the Pac-12 tournament, and you get a and you get a you get and you get a Pac-12 tournament bingo card. Man, that was you know, that was kind of tough for me to to get through. You will win some pretty sweet swag if you just go to our Twitter page at Wildcat Radio 2.0. That's just at Wildcat Radio. You will see some of the swag that we're giving away. It's going to be fantastic. It's going to be fun. Uh, you know, Bryant and Rob and all those guys are all going to be in Vegas. It's it's going to be a, a, a tremendous time. And you know what? Let's hope that the Wildcats can survive and uh, stick around a little bit longer than uh, you know than than their trend has been of late. You know, and we'll get to that in a little bit. We also have Corey Williams joining us. For a very special kind of inside look, you know, uh, if you if you woke up on Sunday morning, you probably saw reports that Nico Mannion has already declared the GoPro. Uh, it was a report by Bleacher Report. It was uh, it was an aggregated report off of something that somebody saw off of something, and uh, it was misread. It was misinformation. It was not true. Uh, all types of reporters reached out to. Uh, Nico Mannion's dad and he confirmed that no decision has been made and none will be made until after the tournament but you know at when that that announcement came about I you know I talked to I called Corey and I said hey you know what what's what's the thought process right now and he gives us some very good insight into what the potential is for any draft pick or any kid that's thinking about going to the NBA and what the potential pitfalls are there is a lot of information that Corey drops that I personally had no idea about because I didn't live that life. Corey lived that life overseas for 12 years, almost, you know, a dozen years is a long time to be trying to make a living overseas. And he did that. That's exactly what he did. Uh, you know, so he's going to give us some pretty cool insight, but let's get straight to it. The women took care of business um, against Cal, completely blown up, blew, blew him out. Uh, Ari, Ari McDonald, I, I've been saying Ari all season, and I don't know why, but it's Ari McDonald. She uh, wasn't 100%. She still isn't 100%. And thank God we have two weeks in between now and the NCAA tournament because that's going to give her some time to heal that ankle of hers, uh, that lower leg injury that she has. But despite that, she still balled out against Oregon the next night and put up well over 30 points. The night before, she struggled. But guess who stepped up? Kate Reese. She had a career-high 30 points. She played tremendous ball. Uh, really, the whole team as a unit played tremendously. And every single time Cal made a run, Arizona answered. Every time Cal hit some crazy three, U of A answered. The women really look the part of uh, at least at least a bid for a Sweet 16. I would even venture an Elite 8. And depending on who they would match up with, 
I would not be surprised if this women's basketball team could hold their own and get to a Final Four. I absolutely would not be surprised. That's how good this team is. When they play, first of all, they're one of the best defensive teams in the country. And I think people overlook that because of Ari. Ari's a, a ph- phenomenal player. She's She might be a WNBA draft pick. She did get engaged, so we know she's going to be a future wife. Uh, congratulations to her on on that uh, you know that moment after they lost to Oregon. Her her uh, fiance now uh, proposed to her, and uh, you know it kind of it kind of turned a kind of a you know a somber situation. You know Arizona losing to to a happy one. You know, and, and I think this team has a lot to be happy for. Let's let's be real. This team is coming off of a WNIT championship, and the last time they made it to the NCAA tournament was 2005. They have arrived. They are one of the best 16 teams in the country, and that win over Cal did more than just avenge a loss. It, I think it solidified them in the top 16. That's what projections have them as right now, and it gives them the opportunity to host a first and second round uh, basketball game at McHale. In Tucson, it's unlike the NCAA tournament for the men. The men don't get that opportunity. They have to go somewhere else to play, no matter what. Where the women, they actually get to play at home if you're a top 16 seed. So you need to be a top four seed in whatever part of the bracket you're in. And by and large, I do believe Arizona will have that opportunity. And you know, But as we move forward... You could see some of the things that this Arizona basketball team is going to have to work on. You know, when Ari leaves, if she leaves, let's just say she leaves, okay, who is going to step up? I know Helena Puello is going to step up. Uh, Mari Carter is going to step up. Uh, Kate Reese has got some room to grow. They have some pieces, but they need to get more from the, the overall group. Sam Thomas, uh, she had not played well in two games against Oregon. Finally, yesterday, she started to shoot the ball a lot more. She was a lot more aggressive offensively. But the problem is is that Oregon is such a dynamic offensive team. It was tough to stop. It was They were just almost impossible to stop. And when Oregon is on their A game, there's no team in the country that can beat them. No team in the country, period. That's that's not even debatable. They, they played UConn. They beat UConn. It wasn't even close. They beat USA Basketball um, earlier in the year. You know, like they are a legit group of women that can – really play at a very high level. So there's no shame in losing to them, um, which the Wildcats did the next night. Like I said, Ari had uh, a great performance. She bounced back. She was hitting all types of jumpers. She was very active. She had over 30 points. She was tremendous. Sam Thomas chipped in a little bit. Kate Reese struggled. She struggled to find her way. Um, the size of Oregon and and just the overall effectiveness that Oregon you know shoots at you. Like I said, Oregon is... You know, I mentioned this on Justin Spears, uh, Justin Spears' radio show the other day. Oregon, especially Sabrina Ionescu, is great at picking you apart and taking advantage of your weaknesses. If you're weak down low inside, they will take advantage of you. They did. They did offensively. They and then they took advantage of Arizona in, in the in transition. They were just unbelievable. That that is just such a great team. If they don't win the national championship, I I will be shocked. I will be shocked. Because they're every bit as good um, as any team in the country and any team that I've seen play in the last couple of years, for sure. As for Arizona, they have a possible, um, uh, you know, they have a, they definitely have a window to get to the Sweet 16. Now, where that Sweet 16 is, who they're matched up with, so on and so forth, that's yet to be determined. One thing I know I do not want to see is I do not want to see Arizona end up in the Portland side of the bracket and have to go up to Portland to play the Ducks um, in a possible uh, Elite Eight matchup to get to the Final Four. I would 
absolutely hate that. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, it, who knows what would happen? Who knows where their path w- may be? We will find that out uh, one week from tomorrow. One week from tomorrow, because for the women, it is not Selection Sunday; it is Selection Monday. So that'll be um, that'll be on pretty much ESPN. That'll be on Pac-12. There'll be a lot of feedback. I will have more. Uh, when it comes to that. And then this week, like I said, there's so many opportunities to get involved in uh, Wildcat Radio. We're going to be dropping dozens and dozens of podcasts. Well, really only just fly like five. But um, it, I think after each and every game that Arizona has, I wouldn't be surprised if we drop a podcast to just kind of talk about the matchup and what's uh, hopefully what's, you know, what's ahead for the Wildcats. And uh, it should be fun. But going back to the Arizona women's basketball team, they did a tremendous job great group of women um if if you don't have a team to root for if you don't if you don't watch this team please 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 take some time and watch this team because as as lifeless as Arizona men's basketball has looked at times the women have been just the opposite and it has been refreshing it has been fun to watch and i i've i've been beating that horse since you know since I started this podcast, I'm just a big fan of what Adia Barnes and company are doing over there. So, uh, as I mentioned before, big time opportunity, uh, to talk about some, some really cool behind the scenes stuff, um, that my man, Corey Williams is going to help us out with. So he'll jump on the podcast in just a moment. Stick around. Yo, you know, I've mentioned this several times, theathletic.com is a great, probably one of the best writing services that you can get if you're a sports fan. It's just, it's phenomenal. It gives you so much in-depth reporting, stories with substance, you know what I'm saying? Like quality in-depth content that goes beyond just the box score. You want to, to learn more about your teams, this is the way to do it. Experienced writers, writers that have been writing for for decades um, are part of the athletic uh, you know, fold, uh, it, it, they give you exclusive stories from from an all-star team of, of sports writers. It's just an amazing app that you need. Every sports fan needs. Every sports fan needs. You know, it's clutter-free. Um, there's no ads, no pop-ups, and, and and no autoplay video, which is like the absolute worst thing to see if you're on a website or an app. You just do not want pop-ups. You just want to get straight to your stories and start reading and understanding more about your teams and why they're so successful. And for right now. You can get 40% off a yearly subscription. That's right, 40% if you just go to theathletic.com slash overtime. That's theathletic.com and put in the slash and put in slash overtime. You will save yourself 40% on a subscription. I promise you, you won't regret it. All right, welcome back. Like as promised, uh, joining me today. Uh, from ESPN and uh, also the Tucson Summer Pro League. I always, I always forget to mention that part, Corey. Uh, is Corey Williams, <laughs> former U of A basketball player, uh, Final Four member of 1994. And, uh, you know, we, we were talking earlier today and I thought it, w- it would be a good opportunity to kind of, you know, kind of provide a little bit of education to a lot of people out there when it comes to the NBA draft process and really the options for players when it when it comes to overseas. And so... You know, why don't we start off right there? Like, let's start off right here. What is the reality of the situation when it comes to players trying to make a decision to go pro? 
Well, I think the reality of the situation is, you know, those first-round draft picks are on solid ground. That's guaranteed money. Um, some of the early picks in the second round is also you're able to work a deal and, and be on a team. But when you start talking about picks 35 and up, you're in no man's land. There's no obligation for the team to, to sign you, keep you. There's no guaranteed money. Um, you you don't really want to be in those situations unless, you know, you're a player that is on the fringe. But if you've got aspirations of an NBA career and you're talking about leaving early, it makes absolutely no sense to leave early if you're not going to be a first-round pick, in my estimation. I went to college. I played for a very tough coach. College isn't that difficult. If you can't stand another eight months in the college atmosphere to secure millions of dollars and potentially move from the fringe down into the first round, you know, that's just a lack of perspective. So, you know, when you talk about leaving early and what's on the line, it's guaranteed money. Um, the way first round draft picks are nurtured and taken care of, as opposed to guys who are two way players, D league players or G league players, it's night and day. It's an investment. It's a feather in your cap. It's a nice line on your resume uh, there's nothing wrong about being a first-round NBA draft pick. So that, if that's your goal, um, a lot of guys have to do the research, do the legwork, and figure out where they're going to end up. Because it could be the difference in you having a good career or a quick career. You know, so you played overseas for, what, 11, 12 years? So 12 years. So 12 years. And they didn't even have the G League back in, in those days. Uh, no. So... Talk about the the pitfalls or the grind for a player that might, you know, even be a, a fringe first round talent. Let's, let's say, you know, uh, like Raleigh Alkins, for example, he he was expected to go in the second round, didn't get drafted in the second round, ended up getting a two way contract, played a little bit for the Bulls in in the pros, but we haven't heard from him since. And he just now signed with a team, I believe it's over in a in Germany or something like that, and. Just the, the grind for a player to try and find their way back to the NBA because that's the ultimate goal, right? Right. It's the ultimate goal, and, and most people don't understand all the obstacles that come with playing basketball outside of the NBA. Um, the biggest thing is if you have to leave and go overseas, the biggest stumbling block, believe it or not, isn't even basketball. It's the culture shock. Most guys aren't cut out. And they've never been outside the United States of America. They've never been away from family, friends, and loved ones in a country where they speak a different language, have a different culture. So the culture shock is what most guys stumble on. Regardless of how talented they are, they're not cut out to spend nine months away from the United States. So that's the biggest thing. The second thing is you think, okay, I'm playing basketball. That's the common thing. But what a lot of guys don't understand until they get overseas is that it is a it is a dog eat dog situation. You're only as good as your last game. The, the 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 stakes are so much higher in terms of you have no margin for error. There are literally hundreds, if not thousands, of players around the world that this team could sign. And the moment you have a bad shooting night or you have a bad weekend of games, they're trying to terminate your contract and send you back home. That is an extremely competitive nature, whereas a first-round NBA draft pick is a development player. He's, you know, a guy, a project. We're working with him. You get to play through bad games. You get to get better over an extended period of time. There is no cushion when you play internationally. Or when you talk about the G League, one of the reasons guys can't climb out of the G League is because when you're talking about these developmental situations like the G League, nobody wants to be there. 
The coach is trying to get to the NBA. The refs are trying to get to the NBA. All the players are trying to get to the NBA. So who's going to stay with you and work on how to get your game better? Who's going to rebound for you while you get up extra shots? Who's going to take care of you and really has a vested interest in your career? No one does. You are in a wasteland. You are in a dog-eat-dog world of everybody trying to lead, and you are totally responsible for yourself. Now, that's not that big of a problem if you're 21, 22 years old. But if you're 19 years old and you get the draft wrong and you end up in the G League, and you think someone's going to wake you up every morning to go lift and go shoot like they used to do when you were in college. If you think people are going to care about you the way that they did when you had on a college uniform, you are sadly mistaken. And they're too young to bounce back. They're not old enough to fight their way through that. So the pitfalls of, of, of playing overseas, are, it's extremely competitive. You've got the culture shock. You've got a lot of teams that aren't ethical. They promise you a contract. You have a bad game. They're like, so what? Sue us. And they send you on your way. And uh, the way in terms of medical staffs and taking care of you, you're just a commodity to them. They'll go on the Internet and find another player if your leg hurts, if your knee hurts, if your ankle hurts, if you have a bad game. So it's a very, very adult situation. And I got into it when I was 20. I think I left the country when I was 23 or 24. And I didn't come back till I was 34. And I saw it all. And I had a lot of good veterans around me who schooled me to the way that it was because you literally are in business for yourself. The moment you get off the plane, it's a company of one person <laughs> and you're making your own money. You're making your own decisions. There's no. And I was my own agent for like eight years. I didn't even have an agent. I was sitting down with the presidents and the GM telling them what I wanted. They'd write up the contracts. I would sign it. And I was lucky because at the time uh, my girlfriend was Belgian and she hooked me up with a Belgian attorney. So I had a legitimate EU contract that would stand up in court. And what, what was crazy to me is they came to me and said, hey, Corey, we like you. You're a good player. We'll do this for you. But don't tell anybody else about this. <laughs> so all the other yeah, all the other Americans in the league was playing on contracts that wasn't worth the pieces of paper they were written on. You couldn't walk into a Belgian court and sue anybody. Damn. The contract wasn't legal. It wasn't written in Flemish. It wasn't written in French. It wasn't signed. So... The club didn't even, the president signed, but they didn't have the number, the license number, the club. Like there were so many things wrong. And that little contract that your agent made on his laptop and the team in France signed, of course they're going to sign it because they know it's not real. <laughs> and so now you're over in France. You think you're hooping for 110000 getting ten grand a month. And they like, man, we don't like how you play. We're letting you go. They're like, where's my money? They're like, yeah, sue us. First thing you find out is you can't even bring a case in France because you're not a citizen. So <laughs> you, these are, I mean, it's a dirty game. So when I hear these kids say, well, I'll leave college and I'll just go overseas for a little bit. I'm like, bro, you have no idea how hard it is. And then, you know, there's the other thing that takes place and it's pretty simple. It's out of sight, out of mind. You could be dropping 35 a game in, in pro a Italy or France and nobody cares. But if you're Tony Parker and some of the guys that have, matriculated from France to the NBA, that's a different situation. But if you're overseas, breaking through and getting back in the NBA is difficult. Like, you have to really turn heads. Because the one thing that happens is you get comfortable, the money starts coming in, and now you got teams saying, hey, we like you, we know you're good, but you can come to vet camp. It's like, why would I come to vet camp? I'm getting 150 grand guaranteed from a team in France 
and you want me to come spend three weeks in San Antonio and maybe make the team. But if I take the time in October, see, Europe starts in August, so you just got to be over there already. So you got to make a decision in July. Am I going to take the money that's in front of me, or am I going to try to make vet camp in the fall? Hmm. That's how hard it is to break back. You got a lifestyle, you got a family, you got real estate, if you got investments or family members you're taking care of, you got to make a financial decision in July about whether I'm going overseas in August or am I going to roll the dice, go to vet camp, where in vet camp, really only two to three spots are actually open. Most of the teams don't guarantee deals. There may be only two, you may have 21 guys and only 14 of them are going to stick. So you got seven guys competing for two spots, or sometimes you got ten guys competing for two or three spots. If you like those odds and you believe in yourself, you leave that 150 in Russia or Spain on the table and stay and stick around, and you don't get it. G League pays a lot better than the CBA. When I was in the end, when I was playing, it was either you were in the CBA, NBA, or overseas. CBA, these guys got worked like dogs, nine months for three grand a month. And that's before you pay for an apartment. That's before you pay taxes. You're living in America on three grand a month, hoping to get a 10-day call. Now, a 10-day back then was like 10 grand. So that was good money. But these guys were making $27,000 a year chasing the dream. And you know me, Saul, I gave up on that, bro. Like the yeah. second year I came out, I was like, I'm about to go get this bread. I'm not going to sit here and make $27,000 a year working at Little Caesars. <laughs> so, yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't what I was going to do. So I went over to Belgium. My first job was 35, then 55, then 85, then 105. And by, by year seven, I'm good. People are like, man, don't you miss the NBA? I'm like, yeah, but I'm all right. Yeah. You know, yeah. I had all my friends. You know you know the Arizona legacy. All the guys is in the NBA. Yeah. So you get in where you fit in. But it's, it's one of those things where if you miss, if you don't strike when the iron is hot, if you misjudge that, that, that moment in time where you're supposed to make that leap to the NBA – you're going to spend the next five, six seasons trying to fix that. And every year, 28 new kids come out with first-year contracts. 25 to 30 new kids are the, are the guys in the media that everybody's talking about. Oh, I remember you. You're from 2020. Yeah, you was pretty good. What happened you been? Oh, I've been overseas for the last two years. Yeah. You got to break out the YouTube and show them yeah. that you're still hooping. Yeah. Because they don't know. So, so, yeah, so you kind of you kind of brought up a, an interesting point. You know, you're talking about advice, or you know, you got you got a lot of people involved, from agents to coaches to family to friends. When 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 it was when it came time for you, you personally, I know the times were different in 1994, 95, 96. Jeez, all the way pretty much to like 2004, because even Richard Jefferson was talking about how he stayed for three years. And he still played in the NBA for 17 years and still made a great living, you know. Right, and, right. and so, so when when you look at the advice that these kids are are getting and the process by which they go to get that advice, do you think it's more of a culture thing? Like these kids are, they have so much confidence in themselves, or or they're believing, you know, they're believing all that smoke. You know, they they believe that you know they're as hot as everybody says they are, or is it, you know, agents? Is it other people? The coaches maybe saying, hey, you know, we got X amount of McDonald's All-Americans coming in. I need a spot. You wanted to go pro, so let's go ahead and push you out the door. Like, what's going on behind the scenes in most of these cases? And is every case always going to be different when it comes from university to university, from what you've seen around 
the nation? Well, what I've seen, and, and I'm going to take a long way around, so bear with me while sure, I make sure. this point. We're going to start off with Moses Malone. Freak of nature, straight from the high school to the pros. How many decades was it before we saw another 18-year-old kid ready to play with grown men? Oh, man, it was like at least 20 years, right? Was it 20 Kevin, years. Kevin, Kevin Garnett, uh, right? I want to say, I want to say uh, Daryl Dawkins. Okay, okay. Was next, Dawkins, Chocolate Thunder. I don't believe he played college ball. I might be mistaken, but I know he was a man-child. And then you got KG at 95. Then you got a young guy out of Lower Marion, Kobe Bryant. And that started, and that started the run of high school kids going straight yeah. from from high school to the NBA, and it didn't work out so well for a lot of them. A lot of them, right? You know, maybe so we, we maybe just, five to ten we, that were household names by the end of their careers, but everybody else was a dime a dozen. We just named five guys spanning forty years. Yeah. So, like, legit, like one dude every eight years is ready to go play with the adults, right? You had Kobe Bryant. I don't think Kyrie Irving needed his year at Duke, but he was forced to take it. I think he could have came in. I think Melo could have came in. Dwayne Wade, probably not. But my point is, generational talents every eight, nine, ten years. Yeah, there's an 18-year-old ready to go play with the big boys every ten years. But the problem is, the monetization of the NBA, the way salaries have gone, the way global interest has come in, the revenues, not even despite tenfold since the days of Daryl Dawkins and even since the days of Kevin Garnett. So what's happened, in my opinion, is that it's like people are, you know, the old 49ers with the gold rush panning for gold nuggets in the river. Yeah. That's what they're doing. Yeah. Everybody's panning for that next diamond, and they don't care how many rocks get tossed off to the side. Where's our next Kobe? Where's our next Kyrie? Where's our next Melo? Where's our next Kevin Durant? Kevin Durant didn't need his freshman year. He would have been an impact player in the league right out of high school. So the, the attitude is we are mining for our diamonds. And we will try, we will cast aside thousands. Because you don't you you'll go through a, if I told you there was a diamond at the bottom of a pile of rocks, you would think twice about looking for it. Yeah, because that diamond is going to generate millions for your franchise, shoe deals, endorsements. I mean, if you look at Kevin Durant's portfolio on paper, what is the economic impact of a Kevin Durant to a shoe company, to Sprite, to Gatorade, to the NBA? What is the impact of Kobe Bryant and LeBron James? So everyone's looking for the next LeBron James, and they don't care how many bodies get cast to the side in this search. So what happens is these handlers, it's a shot in the dark. Why not tell you you're ready? Why not say you're one and done? If this pans out, my life is great. And so whether the kids are the truth or not, we're not going to find that out till they're 22, 23 anyway. And if the kid doesn't pan out, Saul, it's a, no one's invested any money or time into the real efforts of it all. So if the kid doesn't pan out, okay, let me go find another one. Yeah, is he hooping in Germany or France or second division Holland? We don't know where the kid ended up at. He tried out, he got cut, and, and now we're on to the next. Because the hyper, the media is just out of control. Everybody's looking for that million dollar, that multi-million dollar player. And like I said, they've cheapened the kids. Either you're that dude or you're nothing. And that's the atmosphere right now. And I think it's the attitudes... Um, I liken it to the housing market. 
you remember when the housing market was booming, everybody I knew was in some way connected to real estate. I had buddies that were writing home loans and didn't know nothing about home finance. I had people who was unemployed. All of a sudden, they real estate agents. And everybody rushed to the housing market because it was booming. Yeah. The same thing has happened to basketball. Basketball is global, and now anybody with a laptop considers themselves an expert, a bloggist, or a, an evaluator of talent. Anybody who loves basketball gets a local AAU team started up being a street pimp, trying to find the next superstar yeah. or a handler. Um, agents are combing high and low, you know, looking for those superstar players. And so everybody's blooded basketball because there's so much money to get. And that's what's made with this culture of these kids getting all this bad info. If you can't, like the NBA is pretty regulated. NBA teams aren't going to sit down and talk to any jokers that they don't know. You got to be a sports agent and a certified sports agent to negotiate an NBA contract. Plain and simple. You got to know what you're talking about. Yeah. They're not just going to sit down. But college, any fool who thinks he knows anything about basketball can be an AAU coach. Yeah. And with that, comes all kinds of power and influence. I got all the best kids in this city. And if you want any kid from my city, you need to come see me yeah. and make sure you take care of kid A because I'm not going to send you kid B. Matter of fact, I'll shut your whole program down. If you don't deal with me, you'll never get a kid from me. Yeah. And you times that by 20 or 30 or 40 top programs, these guys are the real power brokers behind college basketball. It's crazy, man. It used to it you yeah, it used to be what the coach had to offer and what the university had to offer determined whether or not a kid was gonna be good. Like, hey, you can come and play for Dean Smith in North Carolina and if you do like he tells you, you're gonna be a star at North Carolina and you can have a career. You used to need the school, you used to need the coach. Yeah. Now it's the other way around. You got coaches hiring AAU coaches to on be on staff. Guys never recruited a day in his life. Mm-hmm. Barely has a bachelor's degree, yeah. and now he's on staff making two hundred grand a year because he's got the pipeline to some kids you want. Damn. And you look in the university in the face saying, this is the guy I want to be my assistant coach. Well, what kind of credibility does he have? Why has he even got the job? He got the job because he can get the kids. The kids are the commodity. Forget his resume. you got 10 million good coaches standing by with resumes in hand with bachelor's degrees, wanting to work in basketball, but because they're not plugged into the AAU circuit, they got no chance of getting a job because it's all about recruiting. Well, you don't know his coach. You don't know his family. You're not from his neighborhood. He won't talk to you. You can't get the connection. This guy over here can get the connection. We're going to put him on staff. And that's just the look. That's, everybody's got their hand out. There, and unfortunately, there's enough money to go around. That's the thing that you're yeah. seeing nowadays is, yeah. There's room for it, but it's a different culture completely. The problem, the problem is, is that you don't, you have a lot of 19, 18, 19, 20 year old kids, and they're kids. They are kids, you know, because they they've been pampered the whole process, the whole way through. Even when they get to right. college, even you know, we see Shamil like you know yelling on the court and you know yelling at Zeke Naji or, or Nico Mannion or Josh Green from time to time, based on what they did. But you know, behind closed doors, you know, these kids pretty much get everything handed to them from day one, you know what I mean? And, and it starts right. super young, you know, when they're seventh and eighth, maybe even younger than that, seventh and eighth grade, moving on up and people see that potential and they're like, okay, we need to jump on this kid real quick. And then people get involved and whatever. So my, yeah. my question to you is, how do we fix the problem? And do you think part of the solution is just letting these kids go back to the way it was 20 years ago where they could declare and go straight to the NBA? Well, I got a couple of things. I mean, I don't think 
we're going to be able to go back to the way it was. But there's a couple of things I think that are instrumental that the NCAA needs to do. And unfortunately, one of them they have absolutely no control over, which is the NBA and the players union, um, making it so that you have to be at least 20. But the NBA, that's actually against their interests. Their interests are to get the NBA players union wants the kids in as early as possible. So they're not going to do anything to move Why it up. Why is that? Why is that? Why do they want them in so early? Because they want them in as early as possible so they can work through their rookie deal where they really don't make a whole lot of money and get to that second deal and that extension and get the big money. That's the goal of the players union. Get their clock started early in the NBA. Boom. Get their clock started at 18. Now that kid has more years in his prime when he's an agent and can negotiate for insane amounts of money. So let's get him in here earlier, get his clock started. You know, it used to be you came in the NBA at 21, 22. Now you got kids coming in at 18, 19 years old, 19 years old, and they're getting two-year head start on guys from a different generation because they've been in two years longer. So my rookie deal's up, and I'm not even 21. I'm 22 maybe, and my rookie deal's up. And now I'm 22 negotiating some ungodly extension for whatever amount. That's what the players union wants. They want that money for their guys. Yeah. So. Their interests are exactly opposite of that of college basketball. You can't make a kid stay in college. But what I think they need to do is two things. One, college basketball has to realize that their lifeblood is the college coach. They have marginalized the college coach to a degree where he's irrelevant now. It used to be the college coach held sway over the program. He recruited the kids he wanted. He developed a program that the fan base could enjoy that was stable, that would win. He was rewarded financially. The school was rewarded financially. And if the kids played well enough, we paid attention to winners, right? If you won, you got all the accolades and all the, the attention. Yeah. And with the attention came the fame and the recruiting. You couldn't get picked up from us. There were some odd schools like a Scotty Pippen or a Dennis Rodman that went to schools nobody ever heard of and still made it to the league. That happened. But by and large, you had to go to the Blue Bloods to get to the league because the Blue Bloods were the only ones on TV. We do over 1,400 games a year on ESPN. So everybody's on TV. Yeah. You don't need to go to a Blue Blood to be seen. So what's happened, in my estimation, is the college coach, because now he's forced to negotiate with these AAU, I call them terrorists, these AAU terrorists, <laughs> set, set their own terms on how they're going to deal with you and your program. And they got you know all the shady goings-ons and everything knows, everybody knows about that. So now you've got coaches who are forced to dig and swim in these waters that they've never had to swim in before. Um they're forced to have conversations during recruiting that they've never had to have before. How much you're going to play, um, how, who's leaving and how many spots are open and you'll be able to play this position. So none of that was on the table 15, 20 years no, ago. No, no, I know. Now you're, you're telling kids as juniors, oh, well, when you come in, you're going to be the point guard. Well, what if he don't know how to play deep? What if his assist turnover ratio is, is, is horrible? What if he don't go to class? What if he don't want to buy into the team philosophy? How are you telling this kid he's going to start at this position and he hasn't come in and done anything to prove any type of equity or build any equity in the program? Yeah. So the coach, the coaches are, are, are powerless, but my, my little formula for fixing it is you can't force the NBA to do – the NBA doesn't have to take and set an age limit on college players, but what I'd love to see the NBA do – Get rid of the second round, just one round. 
We're taking 29 with 30. Well, how many picks? 29 picks? 30. 30. 30 picks. We're taking 30 kids a year. And then tell the NBA, say, listen, I want you to double, if not triple, the salaries for first-round picks. Now, guess what? I got the 14th pick. I have to spend X amount of money. If I look at the college landscape and I don't see nobody worth that kind of money, I'm trading my pick and go get me a vet, you know, that I know can hoop. Now what you've done is you've made the draft picks more valuable. Yeah. You've reduced the number of them and you've increased the ability because it's nothing for a guy to sign an 18-year-old freshman and hope he pans out if all you got to pay him is $18 million or $20 million over three or four years. That's nothing. It's not expensive to try a kid on. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So they're going to continue to eat these kids before they're ready because it doesn't cost them anything. It's too cheap. You got to make it expensive. You're going to put money on an 18-year-old. I'm going to make you put some big money on them. Then you'll see, okay, look, Zion Williamson is the only kid ready to come out that we'll spend money on and feel comfortable with. And when the kids go to get the feedback, and when the NBA scouts and the draft boards online start kicking out the information, kids will get a realistic view of where they are and they'll stay in school, which will make college basketball better. Now, I heard a number, and I don't know if it's true, but I heard it was like 84 or 86 kids came out early last year and didn't get drafted. So where are those where are those kids at right now? Jeez. How much better would college basketball be if they was out there dribbling the ball right now for their school? For real. Instead, yeah, so you got 86 players. I mean, I work with ESPN. We we promote games left and right. We talk about key players, SC top 10. You know, we talk about the players at each university. We drop their name in the promos. If we had those 86 kids in college basketball back at their respective schools, the product would be better. The yeah. product would be more consistent. The fan bases would be happy. North Carolina is and will always be legendary. They had a they had a down year, but they got kids on their team that are going pro and they're not even going to the tournament. Yeah. Arizona had three first round picks and got beat in the first round by Buffalo. So hooray for DeAndre Ayton and hooray for Raleigh and hooray for Trier. I love those guys. They went on to do great things. But we, the alums and the fan base, we took an L against Buffalo. Yeah, I that's, mean, you just that's, you can just look at this year. I mean, look at this yeah. year. You know, you got you got a team in Arizona that loses to Washington, and if you look at both teams, both teams have two plus potential NBA prospects on their board. You know, you yeah. got McDaniel yeah. over there, you got Stewart, and then obviously you have the trio of freshmen over at Arizona. And you look at them, mm-hmm. and you're like, I don't know which one is going to pan out. Honestly, like between the five, I have no idea. McDaniel, you know, he uh, he seems like he has the measurables, right? So you always, right. I think that's what everybody has to fall back on is the measurables. Are they are they lanky enough? Could they play the position? Can they play flexible positions? Which is, I think, uh-huh. is, is something that I think people are kind of missing when it comes to like Nico Mannion, for example. Nico Mannion can only play one position. He's not going to be a shooting guard in the league. And if he's not a point, uh-huh. I don't know where he's going to be at, right? And so, and then you look right. at Josh Green. Josh Green, same thing as Raleigh, same thing as Nick Johnson, where they were kind of in between positions, right? Not tall uh-huh. enough to play the small forward, not good enough of a shooter to play uh, from the wing. So where do we put these guys when it comes to the league? And if they're not getting that good advice, then wh- where are they going to go? They go where they right. ended up going right now, which is overseas. 
And so, right. you know, I, I think people kind of mis, misinterpret that. They think, oh, he's a great college player. He must be great in the NBA. And that's not necessarily the case. It's not necessarily the case. And, and one of the things I love, you touched on it. One of the things I love as an analyst is I get to call a game. I don't have to sell the game. I don't got to get you hyped to watch it. I sit there and simply relay the information on what's happening during the game. My job is really simple. For that 40 minutes, it's Team A versus Team B. I talk basketball. I love that about being an analyst. Um, I'm one of those analysts who doesn't really talk much about a kid's NBA potential or where he ranks or what the scouts are saying. Because my thing is, the people that are tuning into this game are college basketball fans. They're fans of Team A and they're fans of Team B. And their primary concern is, what is going to happen in this game where my team either wins or loses? Yep. My team. This was my team last year. It was my team five years ago. It was my team ten years ago. Now, if he's going to go on to NBA fame, hooray for him. But what is he about to do right now in these 40 minutes? And that's what's missing in college basketball is people are so much hooked on this NBA thing. It's kind of like, okay, and I won't use Arizona because people would get sensitive, but let me just use like North Carolina, right? There's a difference between somebody living in your neighborhood and a parade coming through your neighborhood. Hey, the Dean Smith parade is coming through. Come outside, stand on the curb, watch it go by, and then go back in your house. That's not the same. You guys are watching kids come through and go on their merry way to do what they want to do, and the fan base is catching L's left and right. That's all that's really happening. Absolutely. And every year, the fan base the fan base is being told, come outside, pay your fee, watch the parade. It might be good this year. It might be bad this year. But it ain't like the other days when the team was around for three or four years and yeah. you could feel connected to them. You want fans to get excited about a player who's only been there for seven on been on campus for about 10 or 11 months if that i mean most kids show up in august and they're leaving by may so what's that uh four nine months nine ten months at the most now unless you're gonna do like mike bibby did and cut down the nets it's hard to make an impression in nine or ten months with a fan base but even i mean okay you won't use this example but i can use this example okay (laughs) 92 santa clara you know, Steve Nash right. kind of comes in and puts in the work, and and they beat you guys. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And then, guess what? Khalid Reeves, Damon Stoudemire, they stay around. They take the team to a Final Four, which you were a part of. They, yep. you got to, to me, you got to earn your way out of college, in my opinion, especially when it comes to a passionate fan base and a blue blood, right? I've been on right. this, I've been on this soapbox my entire life. Like Alonzo Trier, I didn't want him to leave because I was like. Listen, I know you're you're good, and you might get drafted in the second round, but dude, you didn't do anything in the NCAA tournament, and you have another opportunity to do something in the NCAA tournament. Same thing with Raleigh, DeAndre. Obviously, if you're a freak first round lottery pick, I totally get it. You know what I mean? But most of these guys aren't proving their way out of their out of their position and out of the school because they ain't putting in the time. And 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 as a fan base, okay, let's go back to this. As a fan base, you right. kind of touched on it a little bit, right? Attendance is kind of dwindling, in, 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 especially in football, all the way across the country, right? And then you right. talk about college basketball. You know, if you look in the zone of zoo this year, the, the attendance has not been as, as palpable as it used to be. You know, students, right. they don't have any buy-in. Maybe they're just not as excited as, the, you know, as my generation was about going to a game anymore, right? But it's because 
you barely even know these kids, right? You barely even know right. who they are, what they're all about. You have no idea about their personality. Hell, DeAndre Aiden, I covered him in 2017. I didn't know that kid from, from a, you know, from, from a regular dude on the street versus like my uncle. I would have no idea who, who the hell was what if they had a paper bag over their head except for what I heard from my uncle, right? So when you right. hear, when you hear DeAndre Aiden in the Pac-12 tournament and you hear all this, uh, you know, all this, you know, personality coming through. He's kind of funny. He's engaging because we have more access to him. It's like, damn, who the hell was this kid? And where'd he come from? I wish we would have gotten more DeAndre Aiden for the last year, but now he's gone. We only got a year of him, and we only got two weeks of this personality here. It's it's a shame. It's a shame because I know Tucson, as a community, wants to buy into their team. They want to buy into these players. They want something to cheer for and really, more importantly, care for. You know, I mean, that red and blue runs deep with a lot of people and they want to care about something. And when you don't give them that opportunity, you're just selling everybody short, which is kind of what I think is going on right now, because these kids don't have a they don't have anything. It's you you, you hit the nail on the head What college basketball and they seem to have forgotten. And unfortunately, like like the housing bubble, it's going to pop. They don't get that all of this is fueled by the fan base's dollar. What they perceive as entertaining, fans drive college football, fan bases with their hard-earned money drive college basketball. Be it season ticket sales or ratings on TV, if the fan base is the consumer, and they're the ones in Tucson and all around the country that dial in and tune into U of A basketball and support it the way that they do. I've seen programs where there's no fan base. I've seen what their budgets look like, their facilities look like, what their home games look like, what their weight rooms look like. When there's no fan base, there's no money. So when your fan base becomes, like you said, disengaged and they're not feeling like they're connected to that university, then you will eventually see the financial indicators and attendance and donors and gradings and all that will slip. And then guess what? You don't have any money to go get a good coach. Then you're not a destination school for recruits. And you're what's called a death spiral where everything keeps getting worse. The worse you play, the less money that comes in, and now you're at the bottom. And it's hard to get out of a death spiral when the fan base is not being attended to. So – how do you how do you fix that? That first you just have to acknowledge that that's the way it is, and it's funny because I'm going to change subject slightly. This is exactly why college players will never be paid, and people think we're on the precipice of college players about to get paid. College players will never be paid because the people who generate all the revenue don't care about that issue. It's not important to a fan if a college player – nobody turns on a game saying, man, I really – it's a shame these kids aren't getting a check. In fact, if you poll most college basketball fans, they'll say, these kids get scholarships. They're already taken <laughs> care of enough. They're treated like royalty. No, they don't need to get paid. But see, consumers only react to something with how they use it or what the money they spend. So if you're in the grocery store and you find out some product – it's harmful to dolphins, you won't buy it, right? Yeah. So then that, that product, they have to change their manufacturing, they have to change their process because the consumer free market says, we don't like the way you run your product, so we're going to boycott it. Yeah. When have college football fans ever said, we ain't watching no football till these kids get paid? <laughs> Never. When, Never. when Never. have college basketball people protested in the 
you you might say you might say it happened this year in Arizona football, but you know. Right. That's my point. College fans don't care about the kids getting paid, and they're the ones that tailgate, buy the season tickets, and come out and told. So until your consumer cares about your concern, the people who run the business are never going to change because the people are going to support it whether you get paid or not. The minute fans are like, if you don't pay college kids, we're not coming. But see, people don't care about that issue the way they care about other issues. People vote with their feet on serious things that are important to their lives. College sports is not something people are going to ride or die for. Yeah, I'm getting a product. So you're like, okay, wait a minute. I'm paying five grand a year to be on the list for Arizona season tickets. Then I'm paying another 10 grand for my tickets. I'm paying 15 grand a year for tickets. And now you're telling me that Nico Mannion and them want to get paid and my tickets go up to 28000 no. Oh, no, I'm not with that. I'm yeah, not no. with that. They better go, they go somewhere else with that. And guess what? Every year, high schools turns out thousands and thousands of kids that want to play Division One basketball. Yep. So the college athlete is stuck between the rock of reality. The consumers don't care about your concern. They're getting the product for the price they're paying, and they don't want to pay more. A lot of them feel like they're paying too much as it is. And they're not sympathetic to your cause because they think you're getting a scholarship, which is more than enough. So there's no public sentiment for you to get paid. And there's definitely no public sentiment on the people who organize college athletics to pay you. They're reaping, they're reaping profits. Why should I bring you to the table and cut you in on the profits if no one's making me? The people I'm selling the product to don't care. Yeah. And you can't make me pay you, so I'm not going to pay you. Yeah. No one in the history of business has ever paid someone they didn't have to pay. This is not the way things work. So I look at that and I say, you know, college sports needs to recognize they have to pay respect to these fan bases because what I'm afraid of, and I don't want to see my alum, my alum turn into one of these trampoline programs where kids come in, bounce in and bounce out because you're right. The people that people in Tucson identify with the, the basketball team. The people at Notre Dame, like we talked about, Notre Dame football. That's South Bend, Indiana. That's all that's really popping in South Bend. Like, the only time I've been to South Bend is I made a wrong turn. I never would go there. But if you ask the people there, that's what they identify with, Notre Dame football. Yeah. They care about it. They'll pay for it. They'll tailgate. They'll stand in the rain to watch it. I mean, Duke is the same thing. And when these fan bases feel like the product isn't what they're paying for, then you're going to see – you know, a lack of enthusiasm. You may actually, it may go the other way. You may see protests. You may see these campaigns to get coaches fired. I mean, you and I both know in college, the fan base will get you fired quicker than your, than your schedule and your results will. Yeah, yeah. You know, if the fan base turns on you, then it doesn't really matter what you're doing on the field or how many kids are getting good grades and how many young men are playing their best football. They don't care about that. Yeah, they get sure. rid of you because the people aren't coming. Attendance is down. Yeah. So... But I look at it and I say, yeah, things have changed a lot. I think if the NBA got serious and made draft picks more valuable, if college basketball um, really got behind the coaches and gave them the tools that they need to stand their ground and be ethical leaders of men, instead of saying, hey, I need you to come run this cash register, and the better you do, the more you make. Yeah. That's what coaching is now. You're like a CEO of a small company. And if your company hits, you keep your job. If the company flops, you get fired. 
but at no point are we really measuring how many kids graduate, how many kids become players, uh, how many wins and losses. We're not really, we're, we're looking at, you know, where's the money? What's up yeah. with that? Yeah. And you put any person in a situation like that, they're going to make some bad decisions. And I'm not trying to make excuses for a lot of coaches that have gotten caught up in some, in some foul stuff, but I'm saying you can give somebody their marching orders without really saying so. Yeah. And that's what coaches won't ever get on TV and say, but I'll say it. Yeah. These coaches know what their jobs are. For sure. And they sure. know they know how they're rewarded. If you break some rules, get a bunch of superstars, get to a Final Four out of nowhere, the job that opens up to you after that season is going to be way better. It's going to change your freaking life. Yeah. If you can do if you can do some dirt, get away with it. The next job you get at a Power Five major school. Maybe those skeletons never come out. Maybe they do, but it don't matter because the check's all clear. Maybe maybe you make the jump to the NBA and you don't even care. <laughs> which that's the other thing. Which, yeah, which has happened before. You know? So it happens all the time. So yeah, it's a, it's a real difficult time, and I kind of like I can't fault these kids because from the time that they displayed any talent, whether it was sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, and I say this all the time. You take any American teenager, 12, 13, 14 years old, and you put them in a room where grown-ass adults make fools of themselves falling all over that kid, that kid is going to grow up with a warped sense of reality. I don't care if it's Britney Spears. I don't care if it's Justin Bieber. I don't care if it's Nico Mannion. When you treat a child like they run the world, you cannot expect that child to have any sense of perception yeah. when they reach young adulthood. Yeah. And that's what happens in college sports. That child can go on any website and see adults writing full-page articles on how he walks on water, ranking him this. This is the trajectory your life is going to be. When I was 14, I had no idea in hell what trajectory my life was about. <laughs> Amen I that. No, I was, man, I, I was worried about if I had enough gas money to drive the truck that weekend. That's all I was caring about. But now at 14, you can log on and somebody got you shoulder to shoulder with Dame Lillard getting $20 million about four years from now. If you just keep doing what you're doing, young fella, it's going to rain money on you. What? Who's telling you that? Oh, this website said I'm ESPN top whatever. I'm such and such number one player in the country. I'm a one and done. I'm going to the league. I'm about to be a millionaire, mama. Really? (laughs) Off the internet. Jeez. That's that's how hard it is, and then and then you hand this kid to, and you know Coach O got out the game before it got really bad. Yeah, you know he had Chase uh, Chase Budinger. Yeah, he had Bibby, but Chase Budinger was his first. Like, you know, Bibby was actually the first one, but Chase was the one that wasn't as good as the hype, but Coach felt the pressure to play him. Because he was a number one type kid, and everybody wanted to see him, and everybody yeah. said he was this the second coming. Chase had a little nice cup of coffee in the league. He had a good career. Yeah, yeah. But you know, it, it, it just to me, it's like these coaches. You 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 put you you put the cables on this kid and charge him up for three years, and then you hand him off to a Jimmy Beheim or D or Roy Williams or Lou Olson or Bill Self or Sean Miller for that extent, and they're like, "Yo, this kid need a lot of work." Yeah. No, 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 coach. No, 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 coach. See, I understand that you played basketball in the 70s, and I understand that your dad was a coach, and I understand you've been coaching for the last 25 years, but I've been doing blogs for three months, and I'm here <laughs> to tell you 
Yeah. That this dude right here is one and done. And the coach is like, nah, fam. He ain't got no heart. He can't box out. He don't want to lift weights. I've coached legends. This kid could get there if y'all let me put him in the lab and work with him and get him right. No, 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 coach. I get all that. But we need to we need to sell this game. We need to sell this kid. He's ready. No, he's not. The coach, you ain't you will never see a good coach come out and badmouth his kids. Good coaches don't do that. Sean doesn't do it. Bill Self doesn't do it. None of the top blue blood programs with Rick Pitino never did it. A good coach will always stand up there like a man and defend his young man because that's what a classy coach does. Yeah. But behind closed doors, that coach know where that player really yeah. is. Yeah. yeah. He can't ever speak on it publicly. See, back in the day, NBA scouts called the head coach to find out, is this kid the real deal? Does he go to class? Is he respectful to women? You know, how is he? Is he coachable? And all Izzo's yay or nay, of Olsen's yay or nay, or UCLA, you know, the coaches there, they would go kind of like, well, I went, I went to a couple practices, but I talked to the coach. He with him every day. Yeah. He's been with him every day for four years. Why I got to go see the kid 25 times? I go see the kid three times, talk to the coach, let's draft him. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Now, you know, between the AAU handler, the, the, the internet, and maybe, you know, and as an analyst, I don't speak on kids and rankings. I, I just, I stay away from that because it's not part of my job. Yeah. Where the kid heads and what he's doing after he takes off that USC jersey, that's not my concern. I'm paid to call the game between SC and Cal. That's all I'm paid to do. And I know it's a simplistic way to look at it, but if you've tuned into the game to hear me talk about a kid's NBA prospects, you got the wrong analyst. You can go on the internet and let somebody else tell you all that. Yeah. I'm going to tell you that that was a bad play. I'm going to tell you that was a nice move. I'm going to tell you that was a brilliant strategy. I'm going to call the game. Yeah. That's all I get paid to do. So, yeah, they got to keep it They got to keep it simple, man. Yeah. They really do. Corey Williams dropping a lot of knowledge today, man. Woo! Can <laughs> <laughs> hey, you I'm, get it all off your chest now or what? <laughs> hey, my, my dad's tired of hearing this, man. I'm glad I get to tell somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny, man. Well, hey, uh, so this week you're going to be in Las Vegas. Uh, tell the people where you're going to be at, what you're going to be covering, and, and all that stuff. Man, going to Vegas. I'll be at the Orleans WAC at the Western Athletic Conference Championships on Saturday the 14th. I love Champ Week. You know, it's the, the, the winner take all. And, you know, I, I'll be honest with you, man. When I was in – and when I was in Arizona, the program was in a situation where we took that bid, you know, we took it at face value. We knew we was going to get a bid every year because we, you know, you can look at our roster and be like, oh, we're, going, we're going to the tournament. Yeah. And I played, I played at a team that um, was judged. Every Arizona team before me and since has been judged on what they do in the postseason. Yeah. So when you're judged on what you do in the postseason – you know that there's three seasons. There's a non-conference, there's the Pac-10, and then there's tournament time. And we always ramped up because we knew Sean Elliott and them went to a Final Four, and they were legends. Yeah. We, yeah. we could see the love they got. Our current fans talked about them. So we knew we had to at least get to a Final Four to get that level of respect. And then when Miles and them cut it down in 97, everybody since then been like, man, when y'all gonna do what yeah. Miles and them did? Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, you know, we always took the tournament for granted. It was our proving ground. But to see the excitement from these teams to just get in. 
Yeah. It's so refreshing. I love doing these games. It means a lot to the university. And, you know, we used to get a little watch when you went to the tournament, right? A little NCAA gold watch. I'll show you mine one time. I got four of them. I gave one to my grandpa. He passed away. I gave one to my dad, and I got the other two. And I'm glad that I know where they all are. Yeah. Because had I only had one, I'd have it in a safe somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Because now I understand just going to the tournament is a big deal, man. It March is. Madness is this, it's this, it's the biggest sporting event, I think, next to the Super Bowl. Yeah. So these kids, these 68 people that are going to get called out next Sunday on Selection Sunday, um, watching them play a 40-minute game, you may go somewhere and get your head cracked by 25 points. But that plane ride, that hotel stay, that layup line, that being on CBS, bro, I'm trying to tell you, man, it don't <laughs> even matter. I'm not going to say it don't even matter, but like the whole like five days, you and your boys are going to talk about that the rest of your life. And I was at a school that went every year. Yeah. And yeah. I, so I love Champ Week, man. I can't wait. I mean, New Mexico State is probably favored to come out of there. You know, Grand Canyon, Seattle, you know, uh, there's going to be some good teams over there. And then somebody is going to play for a chance to get that bid. A team that wouldn't get in that large bid is going to get a chance to go dancing. So it should be great, man. We'll see. Well, cool, man. Pretty sure. Well, we might have to we might have to dive into that Final Four experience uh, down down the road, maybe closer to the Final Four oh, time. Oh man, you, you don't want to you don't want to hear about Bill Clinton, the metal detectors. You don't want to hear about that. That was crazy, Charlotte, North Carolina. You don't want to hear about running into Jodeci at the, at the IHOP, Charlotte, North Carolina. There you uh, go. Oh man, you Corey Williams. About, you don't want to. Yeah, I got a lot of stories about that one. A lot of that one. <laughs> Corey Williams, thank you as always, my friend, joining me on the Saul Bookman Show podcast, talking some real behind-the-scenes hoops and what it's really going to take for a lot of these young kids to get to the next level and how to stay there. So I appreciate your time, brother. All right, brother. Take it easy, man. All right, man. Hey, it's it's Pac-12 tournament time, right? It's, it's one of my favorite times of the year, especially when I get an opportunity to go to Vegas. And, uh, you know, one of the other reasons why I get to go to Vegas is you get to actually, like, be more than just a spectator. You can put some money down on some of the teams that you're, you're for or, or put some money down on other prop bets. And right now, you can go to mybookie.ag and they have some tremendous value for you right now. MyBookie, you know, let me tell you something about this. For championship week for college basketball, it is a, 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 a must stop. You have to stop at mybookie.ag. They offer live betting on every game, bracket challenges, national championship futures, and more. You can bet on almost anything, including the Democratic nomination, which is kind of crazy, and even the presidential election. You can even name uh, the next pope. I, I don't know, but it's uh, it's pretty cool. If you visit mybookie.ag right now and use promo code 12PACK, you can get 50% of uh, your deposit bonus. Yes, that's 50%. That's promo code 12PAC, 12PAC. Bet with the biggest, win with the best, only at my bookie. So that's it for this week. Thank you so much for joining me. Like I said, all week long, we'll be at the Pac-12 tournament starting on Wednesday. And uh, if you have any questions or if you want some insight or whatever, anything Vegas related, please hit me up at Saul Bookman on Twitter. I'm pretty active. I'll respond to you. And I appreciate you guys listening. We'll catch you next week. Peace.